0: Welcome to episode 18 of the Pope Weasel podcast. Uh, This is a continuation of episode 16, Who I Am. I'll just call this one Who I Am 2. I do apologize for throwing the other two podcasts in between. So actually, this would be podcast 18, so this is probably a continuation of podcast 15. So, at the end of who I am, I started, I was talking about how I could never learn in school, and how I, in order to learn anything, I had to be able to apply it to something that I needed to relate with, and I, I didn't really explain that much in The last episode that I'm continuing now from, I had a hard time, I guess, getting that point across. But what I was trying to say is, in school, they would give us scenarios that just seem like we are never going to use them. Now, had they dropped scenarios in that we could relate with as a youth or thought we could relate with, then the education system would have been a lot better. Uh, Part of my lack of learning in the education system is because many of my instructors or teachers were complete fucking idiots. And I have always been someone where you've had to earn your respect. If you think your respect is granted, uh, just because you're an elder, just because you got a higher education, just because of a family name, uh, as the Wayan brothers would say, homie, well, we don't play that. Uh, if you want my respect, you got to earn it. Um, and I could care less if you want it or not. But what these teachers and instructors in our education system do is they have this master mentality that they are the master and you are the servant and whatever they say uh is the law of the land and what i noticed with many of these teachers especially in the high school system were they weren't too they weren't too smart they were strong-willed but they weren't able to Make rational decisions without uh taking the emotion and putting it aside, and that I see a lot of that in today's world uh twenty five years later than I was noticing it as a teenager. I see a lot of people now who emotionally get attached to something and then they throw all logic out the window uh because they want their emotion not to be in in vain. If it's in vain, then it's like they were lied to and they wasted all that emotion. And I'd see this uh, with my instructors early. I bumped heads with a lot of principals, with a lot of English teachers, uh, a few science or chemistry teachers. And quite a few of my bosses once I went out into the employment world. The way that I learned was, I for one, I had to have an interest in it. And then I had to be able to apply it to something rational in my life. Or something that I could picture rationally. Like they ever talk about... A simple story question as a kid was two trains are traveling from opposite ends in the same towards the same direction at different speeds, blah blah blah. Um, I would dismiss that right away because I've never been on a train. Why would I care about trains? Um, Now, if they could have just changed that up and said two kids on pedal bikes, two kids, you know, running, then. For me, in my simple little brain, it would have been pertinent where I could make sense of it. So, growing up, I always had to justify my learning for some reason. And when I get these instructors that would just emphasize how important, like, I never found much the use of having English classes year after year after year Uh, for one, I failed every English class. I think I took and two, it was to me. English is like an opinion. Granted, you can fact check it all, but I don't know. English is the language of a weasel. I'd say not like me the Pope, but like as someone who You use English to back your way out of situations when you're caught. So I guess you could say language is something people use to avoid responsibility. Uh, If you can communicate, I don't think you need English. And that's just sort of the mentality I had growing up. So one way I'd learn is I had to be interested. I had to be able to apply it. And then it really helped if I could get my hands on it and actually work it in my brain. Look at it, flip it over, observe it, soak it in. Uh, without that, the only other way I was able to learn was the hard way. Screwing it up, fucking it up, breaking it, ruining it. Um, you know, and my dad would hold me accountable. Uh... Man, you'd learn your lesson. So as an individual, those, that was where I was. I was always raised, be responsible, learn from your mistakes, try your best, and hey, everyone screws up. No one's perfect. So the school system really didn't work for me. Uh, when I left the school system as button heads with a principal who a few years earlier got a state award for principal of the year uh which at this day and age, I find completely hypocritical due to the fact that here I was trying to survive out on my own and uh you know she went out of her way to make sure that that was a difficult time for me um which i don't think i think any damn principal would be like that but i don't think that that characteristic should be awarded to uh the principal of the year so i always sort of chuckled about that now when i'm gonna i think this is backing up a little bit um with my parents, when I had moved back from the Grand Rapids area, uh, you know, my parents are heavily religious. They raised us not to drink. And they hypocritically, you know, drank as they raised us, but they hid it from us. Uh, once we were all of age to drink, they, the liquor bottles came out of the hiding spots. Uh... Peppermint schnapps is no more just for cooking or baking. And, you know, wine was a very popular drink amongst my parents. So, it, you know, as I'm leaving Grand Rapids, my parents are pushing a persona that eventually ends up to be somewhat false, I believe. So they tell me that my life is such shambles that the only way the only terms that i can have to come back up to my hometown and live with them at that time is i gotta go to uh inpatient rehab so that's what i did as a term to get back to my hometown uh, in the grand rapids area i was 16 17 ish um i ended up Going to a 30-day inpatient rehab, which was with a bunch of other kids my age. And I don't know. I sort of laugh at that when you're putting 16, 17-year-old kids in rehab. As I think back at it, if all the kids in there were anything like me, um, we weren't really fucked up on drugs. We were just tired of fucking authority. Um, we were tired of being ruled by hypocrites and a lot of acting out that would probably you know put parents at the end of their wits but I don't think out of probably the twenty kids in this rehab that I don't think any of the twenty were actually chemically dependent even though every kid would say that They either smoked weed or had done acid uh, or maybe had tried coke or smoked a rock or uh, some kids were in there just for drinking. Some kids were in there for smoking. Uh, So this is pretty much like a place where your parents would send you and then they'd shame you the shit out of you. So that for the next 10 years of your life, you thought you were going to be some worthless piece of crap. And about all that did to me was scared the shit out of me because what they do is they don't really have any programs for just the youth. So they bus us into AA and Al-Anon meetings and uh all these other interactions with parolees with adults who are trying to kick habits so you know I'm sure for a lot of the local kids all it did was further their drug supply by giving them some well-known supply lines through these reoccurring addicts or junkies but uh, that was part of my terms my parents uh, said if you come back up here and you want to live with us that uh you got to go through this rehab so as i come home um no i apologize if i did say this on the previous episode and i'm repeating myself but when we came north my mom dropped me off at a religious rehab And that was pretty much the last time that we talked for many years. Uh, When I checked into this religious rehab place, it was a place that my dad had ties to. Um, I don't know if he was a board member or what his involvement was, but I do believe he was involved at it. Uh, I believe my brother-in-law was even a counselor at it. And, uh, when they had dropped me off at this place, uh, they gave me an evaluation upon entering and then my mom sat around and then they shared their evaluation with my mom and, uh, their evaluation, this was, you know, maybe a half hour with, they never met me before. And then within a half hour, of asking me questions as I'm bitter as fuck sitting in this Christian rehab because this wasn't part of the terms of coming home um so as I'm sitting in here uh they hold a meeting with my mother and they say well we do believe that uh your son should stay here for an extended amount of time and I asked them, I said, what do you mean by extended? And they said, well, we'll let you know when you're ready to go. And I almost <laughs> flipped my top. Uh, to me, this was another grounding. This was another sentence. This was another boot on my throat telling me that, hey, we're your authority. Listen to us. We're the masters. You're the servant." Uh, then after they said that it would be an indefinite stay until I was, uh, past their, what, psychotic, or, I call it psychotic, because I think they're fucking nuts. Um, so, beyond them saying that I'm there, stuck there, until they say I'm cured, which, in a religious place, who knows when that comes, um. So then they ended up telling my mom that I was uh, probably experiencing homosexual relationships and that I had a path open with the devil. Uh, It was probably created by a board game called Dungeons and Dragons or maybe not that one particularly, but in some manner of that form. I had opened this avenue with the devil, and the devil was now at my controls. So these are the nutbags that my ma believes the future of my life is in the best hands of. Uh, and like I said, I'm surprised that she never tried to have me exercised uh, It's just ridiculous. So anyways... Uh, Upon hearing this evaluation and hearing that uh, there is no release date, there is no end goal to set my current schedule to, there's, you know, pretty much if I let them brainwash me, they'll never let me go. Um, And then, yeah, to me, it was just like entrapment, like they're going to kidnap me and it was like make me join a cult almost and thank god that place didn't stay open for too long maybe another three or four years and that was it uh but once i heard that i walked out um it was the middle of winter i wasn't really dressed for the weather had a big bag of my clothes and belongings and i walked down the highway and freezing my ass off, and my ma drove right by me in a huff and puff, uh, you know, just letting me go, saying, if that's not what you want to do, then you're on your own, don't come to our house, and for many years, I didn't talk to my parents after that, uh, and that image is still burned in my mind, of my ma dropping me off with some goofballs, uh, Telling me that, and the, the thing was, um, I was highly interested in only girls, and I've never played Dungeons and Dragons in my life, I've never tried to talk with the devil, I've never addressed the devil, I mean it was just, and that's what I've strayed so far from the religion with, is I see these fanatics and my mom was a religious fanatic like she would give up her relationship with her family for a passage that she read in the scripture that you could pick apart Um, but as you picked it apart she would remove herself from the situation she'd never like confrontation because it was so easy to prove her side wrong that she'd get frustrated and the only way she could deal with it was to remove herself. And I found that out as a youth very early. I mean, I could push her buttons. Jeez, by the time I was probably two or three, I knew what her combination was. But going on and not just sticking with the stupid little stuff. Um, so my terms for For return were a couple of rehabs, and once I seen what the rehabs were, then I was just like, "No, this isn't for me." And at that point, my parents had pretty much washed their hands with me. Um, they were done. And as you can see, I'm starting to go down a bad path, and I'm running out. Of options. Um, at this point, my parents—I've burned them enough that they don't come back into my life for many years after this. Uh, I've f- forsake my mom's god in her eyes by not going to this nut house, and uh, it took her many years to get over that. I think and maybe because from that point on i never it was many years before i tried to go back to them maybe she held me in spite for that a little bit but uh you know shortly after that winter i start getting into my trouble um i take a buddy's ninja 600 for a little cruise and then I don't have a cycle endorsement. And I roll through a stop sign and the cops throw their lights on. And as I say, as a youth, I was heavily influenced by uh, stereotypes or Hollywood or however you want to say it. i uh, just not a clear thinker in them days. So I'm thinking I'm on a, 600. I'm on a crotch rocket. They're in a the cop car. I'll just run them. Uh, I had a friend of mine who ran the cop. He had a very successful record of running the cops around here. Uh, who knows? Maybe he got caught a lot more and, uh, just said he didn't get caught. But I thought I was going to be able to run the cops on this 600. I couldn't. I brought the cops on r- roughly a 20-mile chase, 10 miles one-way, flipped a U-turn once I realized that I don't know any of the roads out here. I don't know where to go. And I did realize that all the roads were turning to gravel up ahead too. So, um, you know, there was a time where on this bike chase, I should have died multiple times. uh And if any of you guys out there have ran, the first time you run the cops on a bike, you think, okay, I'm going to take the shoulder of the road around this car. And that first car that you go around and you take the shoulder, maybe the second car or third car, but eventually it happens where that car doesn't really see you over there, and then they see the cop lights coming. So they immediately pull off to the side of the road and, you know, I almost got squeezed off into the gravel at about 130 uh, on a corner by a semi. So that was my first experience of when you're running the cops, don't pass on the right, run down the center because uh, all the cars will just split like the sea for you. Uh, but yeah on that bike chase there's probably and i'm i'm not a bike person i never had a dirt bike i never had motorcycles i mean i'd ride my friends here and there but i had no riding skills but just young dumb and full of you know what i thought i could do it and then having just a little thank god that i had a little pissed out 600 motor because if i had Anything bigger than that, I'm sure I would have not been able to handle it and died that day. But, uh, yeah, so I run them about 10 miles south and then turn around and run them about nine miles north again. And then I lay the bike down and take off on foot. Uh, They ended up catching up with me a few days later at my apartment. Uh, The kid that... I had the borrowed the bike from. I uh, he said I had it, so there's no denying it. And this is like the first time that the free man I am starts paying for his consequences with uh the local law enforcement, the courts, and the judges. So I get like seven or 10 days, I go to the local jail, and that's what I get for the fleeing and eluding. And when I'm in there for fleeing and eluding, um, that's the summer after I get back. And that summer is a little bit crazy because uh, around this same time, uh, I had another near death experience. Where me and two of my friends were at a local beach and one of my friends uh, uh, was into racing jet skis and he had this pretty nice jet ski that my other friend had bought off him. And I can't remember what we were doing down there, maybe just checking something out on it or what, but uh, some kids had tried to swim across the channel here to the other side as a dock and on trying to swim back, one of the girls uh, wasn't making it, and she went under, and I grabbed a life jacket and threw it on the front of the stand-up jet ski, and then shot out to go grab this girl, and as I left the shore, the, now this is an old race jet ski, so, I mean, it's gone instantly, and then as you let off the gas, that scoop plate slows you down instantly. So as I left shore, uh, me taking off instantly threw that life jacket right over my head off the hood of that jet ski, and I had a split decision thought right there. Stop and grab the life jacket or go get this check. and when I made that decision, she was underwater, and she hadn't come up yet. So there's, I couldn't turn around and grab this life jacket. So as I get out to her, and she might be 100, 150 feet offshore uh, where she went under the water. As I get out to her, I let off the gas of this jet ski, and I just eat the steering column. Uh, like I said, with that scoop plate, it just stops almost like it has brakes and uh probably the compression too on it that prop isn't spinning so i sort of knocked the wind out of myself as i ate that steering column but i was able to jump in the water and grab this prop. so as i'm pulling her up she's panicking I uh, i don't know if she was moving when i grabbed her but as now as i'm grabbing her now she's climbing me like a ladder and when I had jumped in the water I didn't anticipate being in the water for a long time I just anticipating that I just got to poke her up and get her to float get her to have a breath of water and then she'll be able to you know I just got to support her uh but what she did was she was in panic mode and she, she was just seeing black. She didn't know what the situation was. She was fighting for her life. And what happened was. As I'm trying to hold her up in the water. She climbs up me. Thinking that she can like w- climb out of the water. And as she climbs up me. She pushes me down. And I have no air. Um, And I'm looking up. And I'm probably about, my head is about five, six feet deep in water. And I'm trying to swim up and she's kicking her legs and hitting my hands and pushing me down as I'm trying to come up. And at that point, I didn't have any more air yet. And I can remember just looking to the sky and all the water's dark to my left and right. And it's only bright above me. And then in that brightness... Is her silhouette kicking. And I can remember looking up at that silhouette. And just saying I don't have any more air. I can't do this. I'm giving up. I'm done. Uh, Here's the day I die. And. As that thought is going through my head. Simultaneously I get another thought. No. Swim away from her. Get away from her. Get up. Get up. Get air, but get away from her. And that's what I do. I, With the last of my might, I swim away from her and break the surface of the water. And now I'm gasping for air. Um, And she sees me surface, and she starts swimming towards me. Well, the, now all I can think of is, all right, this, uh, this girl, she's going to climb right up me again. I don't even have my breath yet. Uh I got to get the fuck away from her otherwise she's going to drown me. So I start back paddling to get away from her and then I start to notice that hey, she's swimming. She doesn't even realize she's swimming. She's just trying to get to me, but she's breathing, she's swimming, she isn't sinking. So I just started back paddling to shore and eventually She was able to get into shallow enough water and get her feet down but because I wasn't going back to save her until I had my breath. If she went back under again, she was waiting until I got my breath back before I went and grabbed her again because I knew what the reactions would be. So that was another, you know, part of my life where I had given up. But something in me, something above me, something greater than me, kicked me in the ass and said, no, it's not your time. Um, And that's sort of how I felt with, like, when I got stabbed. It was, I felt very much the same. Like, it was a near-death experience, which I had given up, and I thought that that was the last day on this earth for me. And I continued to live. Uh, My life went on. For some reason, that wasn't my time. That wasn't my day. And I'm thankful for all those because as I was able to mature and grow older, I was able to be thankful for the little things. And, uh, you know, beyond that, I didn't really learn much from that experience other than, you know, it really did show me with, like, now I'm hyper reactive in a drowning situation, but then again, I know now take the time to throw a life jacket on, save your ass. Um, and I've heard since then, you know, when you get in a drowning situation like that and someone's panicking, punch them in the nose, try to knock them out. I know it's going to be hard, but uh, maybe it will snap their shock as in like what the heck did you do that for but don't risk your life uh and i do i've seen that many times since then where people put themselves in a bad situation and then an innocent bystander risks their lives risks their life to save someone else and then both lives perish so be careful when you stick your neck out there for someone because your neck is on the line. And uh, the one thing I was a little upset about that whole incident was that girl was there with a friend that day and granted she was in shock and everything else but she never even thanked me for saving her. Um, She got out of the water and just walked home which was probably at least a half mile because I was out as far away as uh, town was from the swimming hole there. So, yeah, it was a, that little chap my ass. Still chaps my ass to this day that that broad never thanked me for saving her life. Um, But, uh, let me see here. So, going back to my motorcycle chase, as I get. Sentenced for this, Um, this is where I start my career. Uh, Currently, I'm a licensed residential builder in Michigan. I have been for 13 years now. But I got into construction in 1994. Uh, My dad, while I was in jail, uh, you could get sentenced to what they called work camp. If you had a job, this was a place that they'd let you leave during the days, you'd go to your job, go directly to your job, come back to the jail directly from your job. And that was work release. There's also work release for community service people, uh, that didn't have employment at that time. So if you had clean piss, uh, they'd let you go up to work camp as long as you weren't a flight risk or a violent offender. Um, and actually, I think some violent offenders even were able to go up there and go out on community service. So what it was for those guys is uh, you go out and do like an eight-hour shift, but you might in the winter time, might shovel snow. They might drop you off at a public... Municipality and you might do janitorial stuff or cleaning stuff or they might have you do maintenance work or anything like that. So that is like when I went to jail, it wasn't like the slammer. Um, granted, the when you get arrested, you go into the big old concrete box or into a cell with bars and it really is slammer-esque. But, once I got sentenced for this fleeing and eluding, um, I was up at the work camp. So it was sort of like being grounded at nights. You could still go to work, still make money. Um, you could sleep on a bed that had springs. You could use silverware that wasn't just spoons. Uh, you know, it was, you could buy cigarettes and smoke. Uh, it wasn't a jail like jails are, I'm sure everywhere else. Uh, so as I'm there, my dad gets me a job with one of his, uh, a guy he knows who owns a big local construction company. And, uh, when I go to work for this guy, I got, I have no experience. I got a little bit of knowledge just from a class that I took in Grand Rapids. And I get into this construction, and I really like it. It's hands-on. Uh, there's, I'm bouncing around. I'm doing a bunch of different stuff. And there's stuff going on all around me that I'm able to observe over time and understand how things go together and uh, work. So, with construction up in the upper Michigan, where I'm from, the season, it's usually just seasonal work. Um, For a few years, it was pretty steady over the winters, but when I first got into this, it was pretty much seasonal work. So, as long as I behaved in the summers, or my misbehaving only got me up to the work camp, I was never in peril, really, with my job, because... Even if I was hungover, I'd still work, and I was, I think I was always worth something. Um, I was teachable, I was knowledge-hungry, uh, maybe a little impatient, maybe sometimes a little lazy, uh, maybe a little too independent, but... I don't know. I never found a real hard time to find a crew of guys to work with. But up here it was seasonal, so you'd work from the time road restrictions came off until pretty much deer season in November. Once rifle season came around, it's sort of weird. In this part of Michigan, it's almost like a natural birthright that if you were construction that uh, you aren't expected to work after uh, opening day of deer season for at least a week. You know, a lot of companies would give their guys a week off uh, or else they'd lay them off for the winter and the guys would go on unemployment until springtime season started again. So, you know, with going to work for this company, my parents raised me with a work ethic. I always had paper routes. I always had uh, a dishwashing job. From the time I was probably seven, I've had some type of paycheck coming in, uh, at least on a monthly. Because I can remember when I was real young, I'd deliver the monthly paper, and that was like four bucks. Uh, maybe it was a weekly paper. Four bucks a week. To do like 120 papers um so I've always been working I've always had this work ethic and besides my paper routes I always tried to work the best of my ability um and I do say besides my paper routes because one thing that I would do on my paper routes is I'd get sidetracked and go uh Exploring or something and then it would get dark and I went to maybe I only delivered a third of my papers or a quarter of them So I'd go find a hillside and I dump them. Uh, it was a free paper So no one was paying for it. I never collected um, I never got tips. I just would deliver a paper once a week and then uh, <laughs> I think that's probably where my line as a kid started because My mom would say, well, people would call her up and they'd know I was the only paper boy for that. And they'd say, we didn't get our paper. And then she'd ask me and I'd say, oh, yeah, I delivered all my papers. And then uh, she'd get a couple more calls. I didn't get my paper. And she's like, well, how come these people aren't getting their papers? And then I just would start lying like, I don't know. I delivered their papers. But the truth was, was I had these little dump spots that, uh, I' deliver about a quarter of my papers, and then I just dump the rest of them down a the hillside and uh now that I think about it, I mean shit there had to be a lot of papers down that hillside and or else I'd find like uh behind some hedges or underneath a deck or something they're just <laughs> so I'm just thinking of like people going to put their win their summer Uh, patio stuff away and going to hide it under the deck or they got a repairman that needs to get under there to fix something then they poke their nose under there and there's 200 newspapers dumped under there because it's too lazy to uh, deliver them oh funny stuff but so I always had a work ethic and you know, besides my paper oats, I always try to do everything the best of my ability. Uh, you know, dishwashing, that's all I did in the restaurant scene. I guess I bartended for a little bit, but that wasn't till right before I got into construction. So it wasn't very long. Uh, but even though when I'd wash dishes, you know, I'd take pride in cleaning the shit out of them. Baked on pans or, um, you know... Cleaning glasses without water spots and just always took pride in the work I produced when I Enjoyed my work environment um, So Now that summer I got in trouble for the fleeing and the looting and I move into a house with a bunch of my friends And I get into trouble again. Um, I get in trouble for receiving and concealing stolen property. Uh, There was some goods that about eight of my friends had their hands on. And uh, I was the one that ended up taking the fall for it. And I was involved with it. I got caught with it so i took i stepped up and took my responsibility for it and this is no different than i'm sure today is uh snitches ditches stitches uh whatever order however you want to tune it up you don't snitch um you know it's My family life was so fucked up that my friends were my family, Uh, granted they didn't guide me correctly as a family would, but I did revere many of my friends as my family because my family life was so fucked up. Uh, So the last thing I really wanted to do was burn any bridges with these people because these people had been part of my life for quite a while. And, uh, as I'm making stupid decisions, they've been there with them, with me, hooting and hollering. So, I was having fun with these people. And, uh, so when this shit went down, um, the cops and the prosecuting attorney weren't too happy with me. Because, uh, they really wanted two of the individuals that were involved with this. They had hard-ons for these two guys and uh i wouldn't turn um there's a couple guys that sort of got dragged into it they had no knowledge of it um granted once they got involved with it they never turned and ran away from it or said no fuck this or whatever but they were younger than the rest of us and i always looked at them like we sort of influenced them that night and we put them in a sticky situation. And, uh, you know, I when I chose to uh, take responsibility for my actions with this, I thought that, and partially because of how I was raised, I thought that this was going to be... Uh, you know if you take responsibility that uh they'll be easier on you. um my grandpa was a chief of police officer. he treated honesty with respect um My sister was in the law enforcement field, and uh I don't know if she followed this same line or if she was in this new new thinking. Um, which is different from how my grandpa was, but, boy, was I wrong there. Um, I figured if I came out and admitted to my involvement and took my wraps, that the judge would be easy, the prosecutor would be easy, and um, I'd get off fairly good. Well, little did I know that when I went turn on any of the people involved, especially the two individuals that they really wanted, Uh, they really made me suffer for that. Uh, they really tightened the screws and then didn't back off it at all. And at this time when this happened, this is like early fall. And this is going to be like one of the most significant amounts of time that I am locked up and I sit in jail. Uh, I go in. I'd say it's around Halloween time. I try and my bail at the time is maybe 5 grand. So that's like all you need is 10% down cash. So that's 500 bucks. Uh I didn't have it. Uh I was living paycheck to paycheck. But I sort of thought that maybe the guys that I wasn't narking on I'd figure that Between them and the slew of the other friends I had that at 10 or 20 bucks a pop, uh, I would have been bonded out of jail. Uh, I sat there and waited to get bonded out of jail for $500 and never was bonded out. Uh, I sat in jail until I pled guilty and was sentenced. And that was a real kick in the nuts for me. Uh You know, I did try my parents to see if they'd bail me out for 500. Uh of course they won't. Uh they had washed their hands of me and this was the last thing they were going to do. And at that age, you know, I was drinking pretty heavy. Um I was really hitting vodka hard. Uh to the point that I was mel- I wasn't eating food well enough to get nourishment i can remember 18 years old and drinking so much vodka that i woke up one morning and i couldn't crawl from my bedroom to my bathroom to puke and it was only about 20 feet away but that's how malnourished i was was i didn't have the energy to crawl there um yeah i puked in a laundry basket in my bedroom uh, and then I, you know, I got to thank a friend, uh, a girl that I used to like, and she used to like, but she used to like me, but I screwed that up too. Um, I screwed up just about every relationship I had with every good girl as a youth. Uh, it was very terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry, ladies, but it wasn't personal. It was just, I was a dipshit. But thankfully, this girl, I called her up and told her the shape I was in. And uh, she brought me some chicken and like a Miller High Life or something. And uh, nursed me back to health over the next couple of days, at least where I could stand up on my own and get out of the house. Which, you know, was another life-saving moment, although being that much into vodka at that young age... Uh, I sure didn't realize that she saved my life until many years later, and I have thanked her for it, uh, which if you do have someone like that in your life, uh, reach out to them and let them know that they made an impact because a lot of people do go go through depression and uh, you know, maybe someone that made an impact in your life is going through depression. And by you thanking them, that can just change their whole outlook on stuff. So, so at this time, uh, where the heck was I before I started going off on my little vodka binge? Um So, talking about... I don't know even know how I got on that. But going back to sitting in jail, um, like I said, this is the longest time that I'm going to be in jail for any one time. And it was the most crushing for me because it was the first Thanksgiving that I was locked up. It was the first Christmas that I was locked up. It was the first New Year's I was locked up. This is the first Valentine's Day that I was locked up. This is the first St. Patrick's Day that I was locked up. And it was the first Easter I was locked up. Uh, Some of the, I shouldn't just say first, some of those are only, but it was the first time ever that I wanted to be somewhere else. And I didn't want to face my responsibilities. Uh, That. It was the first time that. I started making excuses for my actions. And blaming my actions on my parents. Which was totally bullshit of me to do. I can remember just being furious at them. For making me sit. Through all these holidays for five hundred bucks. Um, but now that I'm older and wiser, yeah, the, of course they're not gonna bail me out. I mean, what what was the next explosion that I was gonna do? Uh, you know, all I was doing was getting bigger and bolder, and they were no dummies. They seen this, uh, from a long time. Oh, so during this, you know, I'm trying to get my friends to just pool some money out, and like I said, I'm living in a house with a bunch of my friends, and, you know, guys would end up in jail, and that was just sort of what we do, we'd sort of bond together and bail them out, uh, that didn't work that way for me, so to me, I, the way I look at it then, and the way I still look at it is, I held this crew of people up as my in regards as my friends uh, that feeling obviously wasn't mutual. they didn't hold me in the same standard as I held them and this was more evident to me once once I finally get released from everything and during my time in jail, I start hearing through the grapevine of some of this stuff, but I can't confirm it until I'm finally free, which is much later. So what happens is, instead of my friends bailing me out, what they do is pretty much rob my room at this house. Um, Anything of value I have, they all lay claim to it, and pretty much my room is nothing but Clothes that go in garbage bags, uh, bed, dressers, all my personal belongings, um, whether it be good tennis shoes or, uh, stereo equipment for vehicles or no matter what it was, uh, if I had value to it, it was taken from me and never returned from it. and. A lot of it was taken by the people that I wouldn't narc on. Uh, You know, it was just going back to what I said before. I mean, you stick your neck out for people that don't deserve it. And if you're going to put yourself in a place much less than, you know, I got no issue with taking your own responsibility. But. Don't take responsibility for other people's actions. Uh, It's gonna sink you in a hole and you're gonna be filled with regret wishing you would have never done that. So, you know, it showed me right there pretty early on who I can call a friend. And later on, I accepted some of these people as my friends again. And then some of them I've even dismissed a second time since. Uh, but, yeah, so as I'm sitting in jail um, and my friends are robbing my shit and partying and laughing that I'm the one getting busted. Uh, I'm on the inside freaking out. Um, like I said, since the prosecutor isn't happy with me because I'm not going to narc on anyone. He goes into scare tactic modes, and I get scared. Um, he starts telling me I'm looking at 16 to 54 months, and at that time, anything over 12 months is <clears throat> anything over 12 months at that time is state time, so that's prison time. I believe now uh, you can do up to two years in the county system, and anything over 24 months would be state time. But back in 95-ish, 94, um, anything over 12 was state. And honestly, I didn't think uh, receiving and concealing stolen property over 100 bucks uh, justified prison time. And this is sort of where I start losing my respect for... I guess it starts with individuals in the justice system. Um, At this time, I'm young and naive and I start to think that it's just an individual problem. It's not an institutional problem. Uh, As I grow older, I start changing that perspective and I start to see how how when you point the finger at people, they say, oh no, these are isolated incidents. These are individuals acting on their own will. This is not what the system is about. But I no longer believe that um, because I see so much in my life and just personal experiences that I can't imagine. And everyone else is like I mean, if I'm facing this from eighteen different angles and I'm just one person. Then I'd imagine the law of average would put me about in the middle. So I'd imagine many people are experiencing a lot less than this, but then I'd imagine many people are facing a lot more situations than I am. Uh, as far as individual rights being suppressed, um, as far as access to the justice system, as far as the justice system actually being the blind scales of justice, uh, I haven't seen much of that. Uh, there was one judge. ...that I went in front of... Uh, ...I'll talk about that a little later... ...but besides him... ...I don't have much faith... ...in the justice system... ...and unfortunately that judge... ...has passed on... ...and uh, is no longer around... ...to mentor these up and coming judges... ...so with my situation... um, ...I'm holding my mouth shut... ...and I'm just going to take the licks... ...for what I got caught with... ...well... When they start scaring me with a possible prison sentence I volunteered for SAI and SAI stands for Special Alternative Incarceration. Uh, a few individuals that I had known previously to this point had went to SAI had completed it and came out uh, In much better shape than they've ever been in in their life and at this time the the physical fitness of it wasn't appealing to me Um, I had hit a point in my life where I realized what I was doing was wrong and I had the guidance from my parents and my upbringing that I knew what I was doing was wrong. And this was a crash course into destruction if I continued it. So, by volunteering for SAI, I really wanted to whip my own ass in line again. Um, I needed something to scare me. I needed something to be the authoritative figure. At that point, I had given up that... I could handle it anymore. Not really giving up, but I had submitted to the fact that my game plan wasn't a winning game plan, it was a losing game plan. And I needed an eye-opener to uh, to wake me up, uh, to help me mature, to preserve my future. So I volunteered for SAI, and when I volunteered for SAI, There was no mention of me coming, being released on Tether once completing SAI. Uh, SAI is a 90-day intense boot camp. Uh, Two types of people usually are candidates for SAI. Um, One, it's like a last chance program, sort of for individuals in my situation. Um, Individuals who just aren't getting the point across at the county level uh, as far as incarceration and then uh it's sort of like a precursor or uh not really a precursor, but a last chance before hey, get your shit in line otherwise the next time you screw up, uh you're going into the prison system. And I really don't want to be in the prison system. Um, Not uh, not a happy place to be. I mean, as it is, you'd see being locked up in a county jail in many aspects is worse than a prison system. Uh, It's funny because in the county I'm in right now, uh, they adamantly want to build a larger jail. Uh, and they're so. The scare tactic that they use for their propaganda is that the conditions of this jail are so bad and dire that they're afraid they're going to get a lawsuit from uh, one of the inmates as far as the conditions in the jail. Well, being in that jail, I can tell you bullshit. Uh, I can tell you it's propaganda and I can tell you they don't give a fuck about anything other than themselves down there. Uh, As an inmate, our jail, when I was in it, it's a small jail, and they refer to it as 5-5. That's uh, the call sign over the radio for it. So the inmates refer to it as 5-5. In this jail... When I was there, there was a couple of six-man cells. So there's six bunks, a shower, and a toilet with a steel picnic table in the center. Two walls are concrete. Two walls are bar. Uh, There's a TV outside the bars, that 13-inch TV for watching, uh, a little entertainment while you're in there. And then to turn the channel, you have on the outside of the cell, there's a little catwalk. Uh, guards can do their patrol in there. And then this little catwalk is what the inmate's exercise routine uh, consists of when they are given it to, uh, to them. When I was in here for multiple months waiting to get sentenced for this receiving and concealing, um, there was we'd go weeks at a time without being able to stretch our legs the only exercise we would get would be doing laps around the picnic table in the cell itself now when they would let us out they'd let us out it's supposed to be an hour a day of exercise Uh, we were lucky to get a half hour uh, when we got it and we were supposed to be getting it every day but you'd only get it maybe well it depends on what shift was working some shifts you will not get it at all so you'd go like two weeks until a new shift showed up and then you'd get your exercise so you were in your cell for uh, 24 hours a day 7 days a week unless you had a court appointment uh, a visitation that was approved or a meeting with your attorney which took out in the visiting area so back to our county wanting this jail if they were afraid of a lawsuit uh they would have changed their act uh, actions a long time ago um because i'd say the most liability that they're doing down there isn't the conditions of the jail it's the treatment of the inmates um And being on the inside at one time, I can relate. Not everyone in there uh, deserves to be in there. Granted, many people screw up and they keep screwing up. But to label these guys for the rest of their lives a screw up, you're only wishing them to continue their actions. Uh, I really wish our states would start looking at justice reform. So the past... Convictions and criminals, and just people who made mistakes, so they can get a second chance and uh, get their life on. A lot of people, such as my sa- myself, make mistakes at an early age, and then we eventually change our ways and <clears throat> we turn into actual assets of the community, which is what I try to be uh, now. I try to be an asset to everything around me except for the governments that try to keep a boot on our neck. And it's just... So, you know, I hear about this stuff now, and through the experiences that I'll be telling you about, you'll be able to understand a little better from my view. But it's such bullshit, these politicians, how... They keep raping us for taxes, and a lot of it is illegally. And I call it illegal because they do something, and then the only way you have a way to fight back is to sue them in court. Well, if you're in a small community like I am, you can't find an attorney within 300 miles that will be in your corner to take on a local government. Uh, All these attorneys for the most part are um, in, way, in one way or another employed or do get employed by these local governments. So they don't wanna burn those bridges of the money that's always there. And when I got into my lawsuit, my civil suit, I found that out. Um, my civil suit was against uh, a guy who's got an office in the courthouse, and I couldn't find a single attorney around here that would take the case once I mentioned his name. And uh, that's what I'm talking about, access to the justice system. I mean, for a person like me who held up and uh, took responsibility for his actions as a youth and was held accountable for it, As I matured and changed my ways and grew into an adult, um, I expected those same values and cores and laws and everything. I expected them to continue. Uh, And then as I got older and started being more aware of the corruption around, I started to understand how much of a disease and how much of the system it honestly plagues. It is mind-blowing. And then to come up and try to hold people accountable when you have boards and appeals and processes and stuff gets thrown out just on procedure even though people can be guilty as hell and expenses, uh, attorneys raping you for excessive fees to drain your funds out so you get discouraged and you back out of the lawsuits so you won't continue and hold these government officials responsible i mean it's just mind-blowing the the attitude and the bravada that these people have as they fuck over the citizens the taxpayers the people that pay their monthlies um it just blows my mind that they do it so nonchalantly and uh, without even any remorse or consideration of ethics or anything. Well back to SAI. Um, so I volunteer for SAI and the judge grants my wish. Although he thinks I'm crazy, he's never had anyone in his courtroom uh, volunteer to go to SAI. And When he issued his judgment on me and noted that, that was the point I knew that the prosecutor was just running his scare tactics on me. Um, And I didn't really regret volunteering for it, although it sounded like the judge sure wasn't going to send me to to prison as uh, the prosecuting attorney was suggesting him to do. But I did, like I said, I did need a kick in my ass to straighten my life up, and that's what I approached this volunteering to SAI as. So getting into my experience at SAI, because that was ever so life-changing, SAI, Special Alternative Incarceration, the other I got to pick up, because I said there's two ways people can get candidate for this. Uh, the other is like an early release from pro- program from prison. So if you spent a stint in prison and you were coming up on parole, say you had kept your uh, nose clean in the joint, you had uh, did some programs, advanced your knowledge and learning, uh, participated in the programs they were providing, and you were nonviolent in the past five years, or there's some quota. And your say your release date was two years off. They give you an option to get an early out if you could get through SAI and graduate. So when I showed up to SAI, I was bunched in with a bunch of. Uh, Prisoners who were on their way out as an early out for parole, and then I was bunched in with a bunch of uh, convicted people who were there for, like, a last chance before they do get uh, sentenced to prison. And a lot of the terms that these people were on were If this was a last chance program for you and you decided to drop out of this program, because this was a voluntary program, at any time you could drop out of the program and if it was an early, uh, if it was a last chance scenario, you would just go back before the judge and get resentenced. And a lot of times that resentencing would be up into the prison system. So there was motivation for the guys and girls that were there for a last chance program. And then for the prison early parolee program, uh, if they didn't graduate this program, which was a 90-day program, then they would have to go back to prison and wait their allotted time until they were up for parole. And then they had to pass their parole board hearing also to get parole. So there was motivation to complete the program. Now, they also structured it so there's motivation not to resist the program. You could graduate with honors if you behaved and kept your nose clean. But I soon found out uh, that a lot of evil people are out there. And when some of these guards or corporals, it was based off a military program, so everything was lieutenants and corporals and sergeants and this and that, and most of the guys were ex-military themselves, Uh, a few special forces, some marines, navy, air force, they did their time serving our country Uh, upon uh, leaving the service field. They went into the correction field and landed a job here uh, that was similar to what their present career in the armed forces were. So, it was an experience because we did get to meet some pretty badass people who were working there. Uh, You know, ex-Green Berets, SEALs, uh, Rangers, you know, just Marines, pilots. Uh, So, it was, I got to meet a lot of good people, but then it also exposed me to the bad apples in the bunch, and it also exposed me to sort of the problem with the system, uh, the, you could, in essence, call it the blue line, not as far as saving police officers, I'm all about that, um, but the blue line, the one that they say you don't cross, you don't cross the blue line, you don't turn on a fellow cop, you don't testify against a fellow cop, uh, to me that's bullshit, that's, that's what corrupts the system, uh, once you hold secrecy once, then you're expected to hold it again, uh, seriousness of what these people do escalates, uh, can lead to blackmail, extortion, and really, these people are the true criminals that deserve to be behind bars. One story I can say from uh, this SAI camp is we were on a nighttime laundry detail. If you kept your nose clean through this, there is different jobs that they'd assign you to every few weeks. And I was a fortunate one where... I was pretty submissive to this program and I tried my damnedest to do everything to the best of my ability. And I was somewhat rewarded for that with uh, jobs where we didn't have direct supervision, where a lot of the other jobs you were directly supervised by staff of this complex. And with our job, we were on a nighttime detail. So the whole complex was staffed maybe at, you know, 20% of the daytime staffing. And there was no one hovering over us. We'd get checked up on once maybe or twice in an eight-hour shift. But we had earned our trust, and we were given, you know, trust to be at our details alone without direct supervision. So as we are in... Uh, this nighttime laundry and what it is is sort of like a block building that just stores all of the clothing and it has the laundry Um, it would have boots and shoes, socks, pants uh, the MDOC uniforms uh, your bedding, anything that was issued as far as uh, Uniform or bedding was in this building. And we were in there one night getting ready to wrap up our shift. And a couple of the corporals came in. And I still remember this dickhead. uh, Corporal Fleener. If you remember Fire Marshal, was it Fire Marshal Bob? Fire Marshal Bill? From Saturday Night Live with, uh... Uh... Jim Carrey, the guy that's lost his marbles now. Uh, if you remember his fire marshal, that's what this guy reminded me of. He was about 6'6", six, 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 He might have even been Navy SEAL. And they used to, during their shift, uh, they'd go out for a run in a pack. You know, like five or six of them would go out and do like a three or four mile run. And during their run, this dickhead takes a pit stop in our laundry and uh, starts dumping shelves over and just trashing the place. And then left and uh, left me and the rest of the laundry crew picking up his little temper tantrum that he had. And I don't know if he was picking on any of us individuals or if he was picking on uh, the staff who was our supervisor, which I think it was. I think he was more or less rubbing it in the face of uh, the guard who supervised our shift but anyways this dickhead who thinks he's above everything came in there and just trashed this and made us deal with it and we ended up getting reprimanded for that and having to do a bunch of extra what they call uh, motivational detail which was their version of jamming 16 hours worth of work into an 8 hour day and uh, like motivational detail, when you come into this place, uh, they pack you up uh, with everyone that came in that week. So if you come in on a Monday, uh, it sort of sucks because <clears throat> you gotta wait for everyone else to come in, and then once Friday comes around, then you begin your progress through the program, and this first week or two is called the Ghost Stage. And they call it the Ghost Stage because when you get there, uh, I was driven down by a sheriff deputy about nine hours south to the complex. And uh, this SAI was in I think it was Camp Cassidy Lake down by Chelsea, Michigan. And uh, local deputy brought me down. And granted, we had a nine hour car ride. And My grandfather was a local chief of police, so this car ride was pretty civil, uh, bullshit, and almost like a family car ride for nine hours. Well, the the whole scene changed upon arrival. Uh, When we pulled into the parking lot, a drill instructor approached the car from the backside, opened my door, and just started screaming at me, Get out! Get out! Get on the ground! Give me push-ups! And from there, it was hypertension for about two weeks. Um, the first two weeks of that place, they're screaming at you darn near 24 hours a day, getting you, breaking you down so that they can rebuild you. They are trying to figure out what your limits are, what they can say to you to get you to snap, what they can't say to you. They're just trying to... Get get in your head mainly but it works because you are at their mercy and as they are yelling at you you do have the option to quit at any time but that option uh comes with the consequences of either finishing out your parole or getting resentenced to usually a more tougher sentence so i can remember getting into this ghost stage and then uh well i i remember it all quite well but that ghost stage was the most craziest thing that i've ever been to um when you get out they bring you in they shower you down they shave your head uh they shave your head just so everyone's an equal if even the women that come in there is women's barracks on this place and uh They even... If them women come in with long hair... They're not shaving... But they're getting a female military cut. And a lot of that has to do with... Gangs. A lot of it has to do with just... Everyone is now equal. Uh, Once you pass your 2 week old stage... Then they let you... Put about an eighth-inch length of hair on your head... And they give you sort of a bowl cut. Uh, So... This SAI, um, I complete this program, and in this program is where I ended up getting my GED. Since I was a high school dropout, uh, and I didn't have a diploma, in order for me to graduate this program, I needed to take uh, the GED course. And since it was an incarceration, I really did Uh, excel at that GED course and was able to absorb it and learn uh, through the instructions that they were giving us and was able to pass my GED with flying colors actually when I passed it they made me retake uh, one or two parts of my test because I had uh, I was the first person to ever get a hundred percent on that test through that program at this uh, incarceration so they made me retake the section in the presence of a, a guard sitting in the desk next to me because they thought that I was cheating um, and then you know ten years later when I needed that I was looking for my transcript for uh, to get into college and uh, when Washtenaw County Schools sent me the transcript of my GED, he had said that in t- even at that point, that is still the highest GED score out of there. So I do hold a record down there, or I did for a while. Uh, one that I can say I'm proud of. Uh, and honestly, had I had not gotten my GED through that program, I probably, well, maybe I would have eventually, but I bet you I will put it off. So, going through the SAI, I uh, graduate through, I'm getting ready to graduate, like I said, it's a 90-day program, and uh, through this program, I start to communicate with my parents um, a little bit. So my parents plan to come and pick me up on graduation day and give me a ride home, which I did look forward to. And uh, so when I graduate SAI, uh, I go and jump in the vehicle with my parents and we're leaving the complex. And it's been 90 days of hypertension for everyone that goes through there and graduates it is it will it will age you very quick with the amount of stress that they put on people but it is a good stress it did help me in a bunch of ways so as we are leaving the complex my mom decides to start with the story that she has bought a dog and i bite and i you know, say, oh, great, great, what'd you get, you know, and she says, oh, I went and bought a Dalmatian, and, uh, you know, I'm biting still, I'm like, oh, great, great, and she goes, yeah, you'll never believe when I went to get this dog what I came back with, and uh, I said, what's that? She says, a granddaughter, and I knew exactly what she was talking about, Um, before I had gotten arrested, I was screwing around with this older girl and she had told me that I had knocked her up and then she ended up having this daughter uh my relationship with my parents was pretty much non-existent at this time so I had never told them about this daughter of mine um And just as it happens to be when you're from a small community that uh, my ma got a bug up her ass to get a dog, went and got a dog, and the family of this girl that I supposedly had this child with was the family that was selling the dog. So as my mother goes out there to pick up this dog, this girl comes out and asked my mother if she would like to see her granddaughter. And my ma almost shit a brick. She didn't know what the hell this lady was even talking about. And then she said, yes, this is your son's daughter. So, that was the start of my nine-hour car ride home, was facing the reality that uh, some mistakes I've made in my past were now starting to stack up on me. Um, I don't really remember much else of that car ride, but what I do remember is when I got home, I thought I was going to have probation and I was just going to be, uh, you know, bound to the terms of my probation. Uh, upon coming home, my probation officer fitted me with a tether. Uh, an ankle bracelet, which was very humiliating. Um, I think that was the worst part of it, was the humiliation. Uh, Beyond that were the restrictions. It wasn't much better than being at the work camp and incarcerated, although you were at your own place. You could leave to go to work, but then once you are done with work, you had to be back at your residence, And then you were only allowed like a hundred foot radius from your, uh, living quarters. And for me, that was just a little bit too much temptation for me to handle. Um, what had happened was I ended up getting an apartment and it's winter when I am on this tether and I invite a few friends over and we're watching, uh, A hockey game on TV and they showed up with some beer and I decided to have a beer. Well I had a crabby neighbor who didn't like the thin walls and didn't like the noise coming from my apartment so he came out in the hallway and started making a stink with one of my friends and uh, him and my friend almost got into a fight but they got into a heated argument and my neighbor ended up calling the cops. Well, when the cops showed up, uh, I got to let them in. I'm on tether, and they gotta—they don't need a warrant to come into my house. When you're on probation, they're allowed to come in and search and submit you to breath at any time. And when they came in and seen the Budweiser cans on the table, they... Uh, scooped me up and violated my probation now the big kick in the nuts on this was one uh, had my friend not gotten that heated argument I probably would have never got violated with my probation uh, but I can't say that for sure but the other kick in the nuts is, is when the city police came to pick me up uh, it was my sister, who was an officer for the city police at that time. She was the one that cuffed me and uh, threw me in the car and wrote up my probation violation. So that was a bit of a kick in the nuts. Uh, that's the small town living for you. I mean, if you can't handle shit like that, then don't live in a small town. Because when you do, and you're dipshit, and you're getting in trouble, you're going to know who's, uh, who it is who's uh, making you pay for it. So, when I got a probation violation, um, they gave me six months of jail time uh, for violating my probation. So, for that one beer I drank that evening, I got six months of jail time for that. Call it excessive? I sure did. Um, I thought it was sort of bullshit. I don't know, granted yeah, I broke the terms of my probation, but I mean and, and it didn't bother me so much then as it does now and it only bothers me now because now I realize that not everyone is held to the same standards that a lot of people out there uh, had they been in that situation they would have been going back to their apartment that so but that was again also my dad I mean a lot of these people I'm referring to have family members that step up and step in and try to save people uh, good bad however it turns out I always think that's the bad way to do it I think that my family did things right and held me responsible and didn't give me any favoritism and didn't try to bail me out of nothing and made me pay for my responsibilities and my actions but i did think it was quite excessive and also since i never agreed to this damn tether you know i only thought i was doing the 90 day program and if i graduated that um then i was good but well anyways that's spilt milk that i'm not going to cry about um So now I get locked up for six months. And when I get released from this, again, I'm trying my damnedest to be a good boy. Uh, I meet my future wife at this time. Uh, We didn't get married for many, many years later. But this is when I uh, started hanging around with her and dating her. And I get into trouble one more time with the law. And this is a few years down the road. This is, I think I'm 21 at the time. Yeah, I am 21 at the time. And I get pulled over uh, for an impaired driving. I had too much to drink and I was driving. And I get an impaired driving. Well, upon failing my sobriety test, I refuse the breathalyzer, so they cut my license up, and then arrest me. Um, once they arrest me and put me in the car, the officer goes in my car, and goes directly to where I had a couple of bags of cannabis, and a bag of mushrooms, and I sort of had them stashed in the car, but he went to them like he knew exactly where they were and to this day I have a few theories on how he knew it was there but I got no proof on those theories but I surely am not friends with a few people just because of those theories you know I think that uh someone had snitched me out and it might have even been the person I bought it from and When they arrested me, because these bags were separate, they tried to claim that I was peddling. So they charged me with delivery and manufacturing of a controlled substance uh, or something to that effect, and then the possession of the shrooms. Uh, When I tried to justify hey. I'm leaving town. I was supposed to leave town the following morning, and I was just picking stuff up for while I was out of town, and that's the only way I could get it was in separate bags. Uh, My public defender was like, yeah, I don't believe you. And this is another time where I'm starting to see how bullshit this justice system is. Um, I adamantly told my attorney that those charges were bullshit, and that I was going to fight it. And I wish I would have brought it to a jury trial. Um, And he convinced me that because of my past record, that if I fought it, the prosecutor was going to increase the charges and get me on much worse. And, you know, what they do is they extort our youth to accept... Their perversions of our laws. Now, if you look at the laws and the jury instructions of what constitutes a guilty person, I bet you thirty percent of the people that they get convictions out of would actually meet those standards. I think if people would bring their trials to a jury, um, depending, them juries can have a pretty big, ugly jury to all men. It can be pretty biased, so they are dangerous. But, you know, one thing I've learned is I really should not have respected that authority at that time. I mean, I never respected it in my youth. And at this time, the time that I should have been fighting authority, I submitted to it and just complied with it. Uh, I regret that every day of my life. Maybe in the future I'll regret it less, especially with the legalization of recreational cannabis in Michigan. Uh, But for 22 years or so that I lived with that in my past, that has always been a taboo subject with a majority of the population in Michigan. I know the vote passed, like 55 to 45, but if you want to talk about taboo, I'd say about 80% think of cannabis as a taboo topic. And for those 22 years before Michigan uh, legalized recreational marijuana, I was looked down on, and granted a lot of this could just be self-reflection and uh, inner guilt, But I was looked down on because of that. And, uh, you know, had I stood resilient and took it to a jury trial or brought it to a bench trial, I mean, even if I brought it to a bench trial, we did have a decent judge at that time, way better than the judges that are in now. Um, I probably would have been treated a lot fairer than just listening to a prosecutor and submitting to him, but then I could have always appealed it too but then when you got shitty public defenders uh, that won't believe anything you say and that they're going to just submit the paperwork whatever they want to you know, that appeal process and bench trial or jury trial can also burn you there too Um, but so when I get pulled over for this impaired driving and uh, delivery and manufacturing of a controlled sum- substance, I end up doing like ninety days for that. And once I do that sentence, that is the end of my brushes with the law, as far as uh, as far as serious things. I mean. I've gotten my speeding tickets and my parking tickets and I've gotten pulled over. And I'll talk about getting pulled over and the drug dog. But, uh, you know, once I got caught uh, drinking and driving and then I watched Michigan just hammer down on uh, drunk drivers. Just ruin people's lives by fines, by restrictions, by... I mean, by multiple facets, it just wasn't worth the gamble for me anymore to be out there drinking and driving. Um, And not to mention that, uh, you know, if you got cannabis in the car, it just gives them another reason to search the car if you're swerving around. So, um, you know, at 22, my brushes with the law had pretty much, much ended. Uh, the downfall of this is, is, you know, because of that receiving and concealing, I did have a nonviolent felony attached to my record now. And, you know, as getting labeled a felon, it's a pretty fucked up thing. You know, it's, it's hard to put a label of a felon on someone and then expect them to better their life uh, even if they change completely different to the dipshit that they were that got them into that. And I really do think that I did completely change. Uh, but, you know, every time you go to fill out a job application, you got the question, did you commit a felon? Uh, you don't get a chance to sit there and explain to these people how you were young and dumb and living on your own and making stupid decisions that this was 20 years ago that this was 15 years ago that it was however amounted you know once you check that box you can pretty much kiss the idea of ever hearing from that company again and as an honest person I always check that box I know uh, other people with felonies who would you know not check that box and just risk getting caught lying on an application but with me and the way I was raised I could never do that uh, One thing that I did find out which is against you know when you when you have a felony there's a bunch of propaganda out there that you think is true um, and uh, what I've noticed is no one ever researches it to figure out if it is true and one of them propagandas that I'm going to discuss right now is a felon's right to vote now none of this is legal advice Uh, this is I'm speaking of it because I'm speaking in a pro per or in a pro se essence where I'm talking about my own legal experiences and I'm just talking about my own legal stuff but I can remember when I was living at the last place I lived at, uh, it was election time, and a local sheriff's deputy knocked on my door and asked me for my vote. And being a guard, he used to be a guard when I was a dipshit, so I asked him a quick question. I said, and I didn't know the answer at the time, I said, I'm a felon. Am I even allowed to vote? And he said, Oh geez I don't think so and I said well best of luck to you uh, carry on or something to that effect well a few years later I did look into it and at the time I thought felons couldn't vote well it turns out that you can vote felons can vote in Michigan uh, you can't vote while you're incarcerated But upon release, you can vote. You can get registered to vote, and you can vote. Uh, It's a nerve-wracking situation when I went to do it, because even though I read the law and the case studies and the case files that all pertain to it, previous to doing it, even though I read all that, I always had this propaganda in the back of my head that felons didn't have rights and the truth is they do um so one thing i want to tell people is if you are a felon in michigan go register to vote if you're wondering why you should get out and vote um one of the biggest things that i believe in is if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Uh, And also, I have a deep respect for the veterans and our veterans' families. Uh, I don't want the sacrifices of our veterans to go in vain. Uh, Every little right that our veterans fight for and our current military personnel, every sacrifice they make, is for all of our rights. And voting is a right that I wish a lot more people would take serious. I I know a lot of people think that voting doesn't control or their vote doesn't matter. But when you can rally the masses and every vote does matter, when you start looking at uh, the polls the voting polls, and the numbers. A lot of these races are won and lost by very small margins. So I take deep pride in uh, my rights, especially since some of them were revoked for me. Some of them were revoked from me for some time. Uh, You don't know what you have until you don't have it. And honestly, with my rights, uh, I respect them all, and I intend to fully use all of my rights. And voting and the right to run for public office, uh, I take pride in both of those. I did try to run for public office once and lost but uh, it was a major hurdle for me to get over, and uh, it was a great experience. So, back on picking up with my timeline. Um, I was a troublemaker my whole life, and once I meet my future wife, she really straightened my life out for me. Uh, I really credit her with saving my life she was able to talk some sense into me and get me to calm down and get me to prioritize multiple aspects of my life. Uh, I'm gonna fast forward a bunch and get just skip through the boring years of my life where I pretty much keep my nose clean and uh, I start to build my way back into society, um, in 2006, I got my builder's license. And at that time, I'm still working for other contracting outfits. And then about 2008, uh, I got into issues with my current employer and the whereabouts of my Davis bacon money that, uh, Was missing out of my account and I sever my ties with uh, my last employer that I've had. And at this point, I go out on my own and uh, Start uh, My business as a contractor and start being able to support myself through my skilled trades that I've learned over the last 20 some years. Um, <clears throat> so I met my girlfriend probably in ninety seven, ninety six. I ended up marrying her in 2011, uh, We're living together happily. I'm doing my thing as a contractor. And now I'm about to to get involved with some evil people. Um, My father-in-law brings me to his friend's house and uh, his friend wants to do a project and build uh, a garage. For his son to do uh, auto mechanics out of and my father-in-law was supposed to do this project uh, the complete project prior to me coming over to this project and he is a union mason so he gets relocated uh, to a couple western states for the winter months for work and he can't take on this project, or so I'm told. So, in I come uh, to take over the project and do what my father-in-law was supposed to do. Uh, So, this is a project for my in-laws' good friends, and this guy happens to have an office at our local courthouse. Well. About a month into the project, he decides to quit paying me, and when I try to collect on my bill, at first he ignores, well, at first he tries to uh, swindle me out of what uh, I billed him, he tries to change uh, the price structure, And then he just plain out refuses to pay me close to 11 grand. And this project is in the fall time when, uh, you know, not much work is coming in in the fall. And once I took this project, I had turned away other projects and now, uh, this guy had drained me out of about 11 grand of my company money, and he is refusing to pay me uh, what was owed to me at this time. So, first he tries swindling my prices down, and then I told him no, and then he goes silent for a while. So, then I try to collect my money, and then they come up with a story that uh, he wanted the project done a different way and I did it wrong. Uh, I tell him, no, I did it exactly how you and my father-in-law planned to do it. I just did what you wanted. Uh, He goes quiet and then sends me a threatening letter uh, after I put a lien on his property And he threatens that uh, if I don't voluntarily remove the lien, that uh, he's going to, I can't exactly remember how it is. I'm trying to block that shit out. But here's the point. Uh, I do a little bit of legal research on what my rights are as a builder. And then I start looking at the Michigan laws as far as fraud, as far as extortion. Um... As far as everything, Uh, so I come up with about six or seven serious criminal offenses that this guy uh, committed by not paying me my money. And I go and approach uh, my local sheriff about it. Uh, He is unwilling to take on this task. Um, I have a meeting with him for roughly two and a half hours. Where I just am just appalled at his lack of uh doing his duty and investigating these crimes. So he eventually gets a detective to come in to take my statement. And that's about all I hear out of the Sheriff's Department. Um, I end up filing a Freedom of Information Act request. And then getting what, uh, this individual, what their side of the story was out of the police report. So at this point, they start changing their story and saying that I did stuff wrong and they start fabricating, uh, me as a bad guy. So at this time, I think my father-in-law is still on my side. and. I approach him and ask him what's going on, and he just wants to avoid it and doesn't want to discuss it. Well, I got a lien on their house, and I go to look for an attorney to uh, uh, pursue foreclosing on this lien to secure my payment for my work and materials that I've supplied. I also went to the state police and talked to a local detective, but then I find out that uh, the detective's last name is the same name that I've filed uh, unlicensed builder complaints on. So I'd imagine that some of them complaints were maybe against his uncle or a cousin, and. Uh, I don't know if it's that or if he's just protecting this individual that I have a lean on, but the state police won't even take a statement. I have freedom of information act uh, all the detectives paperwork from my complaint that I came to file and I was re I received. A notification saying that there was no paperwork for my complaint. My complaint never happened. So, I instantly start questioning what the heck is going on here. Um, Then, once I tried to find a local attorney to pursue this, uh, it was like all the local attorneys were also protecting this guy. Uh, As soon as I mentioned his name no one was willing to take the case on. Uh, I searched for attorneys within a 300 mile radius and once I got below the bridge into lower Michigan, uh, those attorneys were unwilling to drive uh, five to six hours to represent me in a case. So I ended up finding an attorney from about an hour and a half away, who seemed eager to take it, who said I got a good case, although he didn't want to listen to the complaints that I wanted to file. He decided just to file one complaint. Well, this is where I start to learn about how shitty the justice system is. It isn't with all my criminal dealings that I was involved with in my youth. Uh, At that point, I was fine with a lot of the decisions or how stuff went down because I was taking responsibility for my actions. And I couldn't blame anyone else for my heartaches that I caused on myself. So... As I'm dealing with this attorney, we go through the first couple of uh, interrogatories and questions and answers back and forth. And every time I submit my evidence, uh, the defendant in this civil case ends up changing his story. And my attorney never addressed it. And it got to the point where my lien gets thrown out, it gets dismissed, and then we get put to uh, alternative dispute resolution. And if you're not familiar with civil cases, what they try to do is they try to keep it out of the courts as long as they can and let the parties uh, settle out of court. And when you don't want to settle out of court before you can get it, to a judge and let a judge or a jury decide it, they try to put it to an alternative dispute resolution. And what I learned this is, this is where the judge picks three attorneys that he thinks will agree with him. Um, both attorneys, the plaintiff and the defendant's attorney, also gets a somewhat of a say on who these attorneys are. I think each side gets to pick one and then maybe the judge gets to pick the third. But in these small towns and I'd imagine in the bigger towns, these judges and attorneys pick, uh, they pick the three attorney counsel uh, in whatever regards they want the outcome of the case to be. So with me, Uh, I go down to ADR. The first time I go down there, I show up and uh, this is a couple hours away. So I ended up going down and getting a motel room out of town so I could wake up and not have to worry about a a flat tire or missing this important meeting. So when I show up, the secretary looks at me and says, uh, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm so-and-so, and I'm here for ADR today. And she says, uh, no, that was uh, rescheduled. So I call up my attorney, and I ask him, uh, why didn't you tell me this was rescheduled? And he says, oh, I, I'd slipped my mind. I thought we told you, blah, blah, blah. So a month later, a couple weeks later, whatever it is, I show back up. And we go through this ADR. And this can be one of the most frustrating scenarios you go through if you are trying to defend your innocence. Um, Especially when you have a biased panel of attorneys and you have a kahoot as the defendant. Um, They offered me 10 cents on the dollar for my case uh, in regards to what I was owed. And when you're in ADR, you have a right to deny all the offers on the table, which I did. Uh, I was not gonna settle for 10 cents on the dollar. When I had decided not to settle, this had upset my attorney. Um. At this point, he had soaked me for close to 20 grand in attorney fees. And then the next day, he decides he's going to drop me as a client because I didn't settle on that ADR. Uh, part of me was destroyed. Another part of me was good riddance. Uh, the part of me that was destroyed knew that acquiring a Another attorney to take on this case was going to be tough. And the part of me that was relieved was that I was able to get this piece of shit attorney. Uh, You know, I I wasn't giving him any of my bankroll anymore. And uh, I was was lucky to find what I believe as of right now a good attorney um, to replace my original one. Uh, when I brought him my paperwork, he ended up filing some additional claims, some claims that the first attorney wasn't willing to file. And we were able to get this case back on course. Uh, this hap, this incident where this individual, um, decide not to pay me. This goes back to 2013. So over the next four years we try to get this to a trial and over this four years uh, this individual ends up wrangling in the building inspector to violate my rights as a builder. Um, As a Michigan licensed builder Uh, we are governed by uh, the Occupational Code, and in that Occupational Code, we have certain rights. And some of those rights go with a complaint process. And this guy, in order to do what he was trying to do, had to go through a process through the state of Michigan and file a complaint. He knew he didn't have a leg to stand on if he had to go through the state because he didn't have anyone in the state that he could influence. So he decided to bypass this route, and he decided to get our local building inspector to issue some opinions. Uh, And not only issue some opinions, but then to produce documents that made it look like Uh, these documents were submitted to me. And then uh, this building inspector made some statements that were false also. Um, So for about four years, every time I would counter this guy's ludicrous claims of why he didn't pay me, uh, he would end up changing his story of why he didn't pay me. And there was so much paperwork involved that uh, the courts either purposely or just because of the paperwork, they didn't pay attention to how this guy just kept changing his story of why he didn't pay me. Um, And then uh, the tough part was was that when I wanted to get – My father-in-law is a witness for me. Um, He didn't want to get involved because their wives, my father-in-law's wife and the wife of this client of mine, they were best friends. Um, I try not to get in the middle of things, so I've never pushed my father-in-law to witness for me. I had enough evidence uh, through my emails. Through setting up accounts, through invoicing this guy, that everything he was claiming I could prove was false. Um, and that's the frustrating part of this is that the justice system allows people like this to flourish. Uh, in my opinion, this guy is just the lowest scum of the earth. This guy's lower than whale shit, in my book. But anyways, so now I'm starting to try to have to tackle um, some false documents from the building department. So luckily for me, I've made multiple Freedom of Information Act requests at this time, and I'm getting documented evidence. Uh, I'm getting statements that aren't coinciding with statements that are currently being made in the court documents. Uh so when I see one of these documents from the local building department, I decide to grab a tape recorder, a little digital recorder and go and confront uh the building inspector about these lies. Um, So I go in and confront him and he blows up at me and starts uh, screaming at me and telling me how I'm wrong with uh, how everything went down. And I call him out, I tell him he's full of bullshit. He knows damn well what I said why is he changing his story now? Well, he didn't know I was recording him. And then once we finally get this to trial, uh, you know, I feel pretty confident. I feel like I have this guy changing his story. I have this recording of this building inspector saying different than what he's testifying against. And... I show up for the trial pretty confident. Uh, When I walk into the courthouse, as I say, the guy that is the defendant in this case has an office. And uh, his office is in the courthouse. So as I walk into the courthouse, out of his office walks my father-in-law. And then the two defendants and their attorney. Now, the fucked up thing about the attorney is, is the attorney in this guy's personal civil case is the same attorney that this guy uses for his county business. And to some of you, you might not see an issue with that. But to me, I see a major issue with that. Uh, This guy's business as a county official is to give our County Board of Commissioners uh, a verified expense report to pay for the funds of his department in the courthouse. So what that means is he makes a list of what his expenses are and attorney fees are those expenses and then he submits uh, this list of expenses to our county board and they approved the payment. Well, I can tell you this guy is lying every which way he can to get out of paying me this money. And as a public, as someone who's elected to a public position, I think that's a terrible person to have in that Position is someone who's willing to lie uh, at every expense possible, not to, in order to avoid all responsibility of their actions. So, with the lawyer, what he gets to do is him and this lawyer can pad his personal attorney fees through county business. Uh, he can just simply tell the attorney that. I uh, run up the hours on the county project, and he's getting paid no matter what. But if this guy doesn't have the 10 grand, 11 grand to pay me for his bill, I guarantee you he doesn't have the money to pay for an attorney that lives 10 hours away. So, you know, that's the fucked up part about this is when I show up to court. Not only am I already pissed off that this guy is using the same attorney that he uses for uh, county business, which I think is a huge conflict of interest, but I realize that my father-in-law has been bullshitting me the whole fucking time. Um, The reason he's coming up out of this guy's office is because he's going to witness for this guy and testify for him. So... The first day of the trial, now we've waited four years for this trial, uh, to take place. And we've been assigned three different judges at this time. Um, the original judge dismissed himself because this is a county employee and he felt biased that he couldn't give, uh, impartial, uh, judgment so we got recommended to a different judge who is in a western county from here and i believe that judge may have may even be the same judge that uh has a big second amendment lawsuit that he denied some veterans rights uh firearms rights because uh he was going to adopt his grandchild or some. So the second judge uh, after he dismissed Arlene he retires and then we get to this third judge. Now we go to the trial in front of this third judge and the first day of the trial I go in feeling confident. I have multiple emails discussing everything. I have this guy changing his tune multiple times none of his stories line up uh they keep changing and to for me it looks like a slam dunk uh then the father-in-law gets up on the stand as his witness and starts committing perjury and saying that uh he had nothing to do with the project that he had nothing to do with the design that all he did was brought me over there uh, beyond that he didn't have anything to do with this project then the building inspector gets up there and says that uh the work i did doesn't pass code and this is also a lie and perjury uh i have an inspection sticker that says i passed as an inspection for code uh, i have a statement from him that's He says, I barely pass code, which he has no right to put an opinion on it. Uh, You either pass code or you don't pass code. Uh, So he gets up there and sort of deep sixes me with his perjury. And then his secretary gets up there and she makes a statement that ends up being perjury. And then... The defendant gets up there and makes a statement that ends up being perjury and then another witness gets up there makes a statement, but he didn't purge. Um, And then I get up and I say my statement that is contradicts all the testimony of that day, pretty much. Um, Day two of the trial. Well, day one ends, and I go home, and I am flabbergasted. Um, I'm looking at my wife saying, what the fuck is going on with your dad? Uh, What the fuck is he doing to me? Uh, He's up there changing his story, saying he wasn't involved, saying this, saying that. Uh, So day two, the trial, we're up in circuit court, and for some odd reason, the trial gets moved down into uh, the family court, a small, tiny room. I don't know why I believe it is to keep this public official out of the eyes of the public, because I believe there was jury selection that day, and they booted us out for uh, jury selection when we had that room reserved well in advance. So, before the second day of trial, uh, I play the recording I had of the building inspector to my attorney and Since we were moved into this smaller family courtroom uh it's an addition that was probably built twenty or thirty years ago, and I tend to believe that there's no insulation in the walls and with a hollow. Uh, wood door on the front of the room Tra- sound can travel through the walls pretty easy well I approach my attorney telling him hey all of yesterday was a bunch of perjury and I can prove it as far as the building inspector goes because I have him on tape actually saying opposite of what he testified to So my attorney listened to that tape, and when he listened to that tape, he played that tape loud enough that that building inspector waiting in the hall could hear himself on that recording. I don't think he heard what that recording contained, but I'm sure he recognized his own voice through the wall. Uh, On the second day of the trial, we brought... Everyone back up on the stand except for my father-in-law because he didn't show up for the second day. And uh, when we brought up the building inspector, now my attorney had some evidence to counter him with. And he got the building inspector to admit that the testimony from the day before wasn't correct. Then he was able to get the secretary up there and admit, she admitted that her testimony wasn't correct the day before. Then my attorney was able to get the defendant up there and was able to get him to admit that his testimony the day before wasn't true. Um, so at this point, there's one, two, three, four people that were proven by their, the defendant's own witness testimonies that the previous day's testimonies were all false. Uh, if you look up perjury, that will be the definition of it. Uh, false statements, sworn false statements or something to that effect. Uh, So at this point, I'm thinking this is a slam dunk. Uh, For some odd reason, the judge doesn't let us do closing arguments during court. He dismisses court and requests that the closing arguments be written Uh, to this day. I do not know what my attorney or what that attorney argued in their closing arguments. Um, this trial was roughly almost two years ago this week that this trial took place. Uh, as soon as we were as the trial was dismissed, I started asking my attorney about the perjury Um, he didn't seem too concerned about it but I ended up filing a complaint with the attorney general's office Uh, usually a perjury complaint would go to the local district attorney but when the sheriff's department finally filed the criminal complaint the local district attorney Uh, dismissed himself from it. Uh, He couldn't do it unbiased, so it was referred over to the state AG's office. Uh, Now, because the police report of the defendant was all falsified, the state AG's office used uh, prosecutionary discretion, and they decided not to pursue it uh with the false testimony that the defendant wrote uh in the police report um there was no evidence besides my word uh saying it so nothing ever came out of you know like i said the state ag's office dismissed the criminal complaint Uh, As far as the fraud and extortion because uh, they believed the falsified police report and the reason I say it's a falsified police report is because he's changed his story why he didn't pay me from that police report and various court documents since then so uh, you can choose whatever you want to believe out of him but from the beginning. Four years later, he changes his mind maybe a half dozen times of why and for what reason he doesn't pay me. Uh, So, when I filed the complaints on the perjury, I filed them with the state AG's office because the local prosecutor dismissed himself from it. And at the time, that was uh, Shooty's duty. You know, don't you remember him, Shooty? On duty, Shooty? Yeah. Uh is that guy a waste? What a joke. Um the lights were on, but no one was there. Every time man, if you want to talk about malfeasance, misfeasance, and non-feasance, uh right beyond the the definition of any of those terms would be a picture of our old AG shooting. So You know, I thought this justice system that held me accountable and responsible as a youth, I thought this justice system was the blind scales of justice. No matter who was in it, uh, if you did a crime to an individual or to society, that you were going to be uh, held responsible for that crime. And I was finding through this court case over the previous four years that this justice system is only meant to punish the poor and the unconnected people, Uh, the minorities, the less fortunates. Uh, It definitely isn't fair, Uh, you know. It just blows my mind how so many public officials around here turned a blind eye to me uh, and ignored their duties as their positions require. It just blows my mind. So back to the trial. I uh, After the second day of trial, we're dismissed, and I'm feeling damn confident. Um, I... I decided to keep this in front of a judge. Uh, for one, I was scared of a jury because current times, uh, it seems like everyone's pilled out. And the last thing I wanted to do was get some people who are all scripted up, uh, deciding my fate and future. Uh, So I decided to do a bench trial and keep it in a professional's hands. I thought that the judge was going to be unbiased and uh, impartial. And during the trial I found out that that wasn't going to be the case. There was a point where on day two the defendant was admitting that day one's testimony was false. And the judge asked him, are you sure you really mean that or something to that effect? Uh, You know, he was trying to talk this defendant out of putting his foot in his mouth and admitting that he purged the day before. But this defendant was so worked up at the time that he didn't even realize the judge was trying to give him a solid. And then he adamantly said, yes, I know exactly what I'm saying, you know. So at that point when I seen that judge try to backpack this defendant across this perjury, I sort of had an oh shit moment. Um but yet with all the perjury, I thought there's no way that uh anything could go bad for us. Well, After I filed the complaint with the AG's office, I tried to get a transcript of the trial. Uh, Now, remember, we're talking about public officials. Uh, One guy was voted in. Two guys, well, a guy and a girl are hired, you know, the building inspector and his secretary both committed perjury. And... Uh, wow, it just blows my mind what these people tried to do to me. Um, and the crazy part about it is is trying to figure out why they did it. Um, if I was someone mighty and powerful, I could see it. And the weird thing is, is 2014 Donald Trump gets elected, well, not, anyways, the Donald Trump election is happening, and that's coinciding with me going through uh, my civil case. And as I hear uh, Trump's defense... Now I'll back up a minute when I, I did say I ran for public office when I ran for public office Iran is no party affiliation uh, I have said it before and I'll say it again. Both sides the left and the right they're both just as corrupt I think they just point the finger at each other to keep everyone else occupied so we don't point the finger at both of them at the same time, but. Looking at the ridicule and scrutiny that Trump was going through and how he tried to do something and then they were getting these judges out of the ninth district or whatever district to overrule them. And then the masses in the community were saying, well, these judges know. Um, Going through my civil trial at the same time, I could feel for Donald Trump what he was going through uh it I understood that a nobody like me was getting a very similar treatment through the justice system uh It sure wasn't blind scales of justice as biased uh biased opinions of justice so The difference is, is I can see why people are doing it to Trump. Um, He's in a powerful position. He's a powerful man. He's wealthy. He's powerful. Uh, People like that stop crooked, corrupt people. Um, Or they can spoil crooked, corrupt people's way of profiting. So my issue I have always had with this is why these people decided to do what they were doing to me. Why would they lie? Why would they go out of their way to do this to me? And I can't come up with a good excuse or a reason for that. Uh, Maybe once all the chips land where they may, maybe I'll find out, maybe I won't. But, yeah, I don't know. Um, it could be. I got a few different opinions, but I honestly don't know uh, which one would be more accurate. So I know this is the fourth time I probably said it, but after I filed a complaint with the AG's office for the perjury, I try to get the transcript of the trial because I want to address our Houghton our county board, uh, and I want to let them know what employees and public officials in the county are doing. So I request the transcript and we have also put in a motion for reconsideration previously as far as the first judge dismissing the lien. And I wait and wait and I wait I get no copy of the transcript uh, we get no response for the motion or reconsideration and we don't get an opinion from the judge. Uh, three months go by six months go by nine months go by 12 months go by still I have none of the three things I want to have I want to have an opinion from the judge. I want to have the transcript of the trial that's going to prove the perjury. And I want a ruling on the motion of reconsideration to reinstate the lien. Uh, so after a year, nothing. Um, in this time I'm asking my attorney, I'm doing a little bit of research and Uh, These judges, all they're told is that they got to do it quick and speedy, but they never define what's quick or what's speedy or whatever the terminology is. So the laws for these judges sort of let these judges procrastinate and lollygag on writing these opinions. So finally... I get fed up with waiting for this judge to write an opinion and I file a complaint on the judge. Uh, I file a two-part complaint. One that, well, sort of a three-part complaint. One, that he hasn't ruled on the motion of reconsideration. Two, that they haven't released the transcript of the trial that we've requested. And three, that he hasn't issued an opinion uh, in the trial and we've waited I think at this time is like 15 months uh, for him to do so. Well that goes to the Michigan Judicial Tenure Commission. Um, what they ended up sending me back was uh, Thank you for your complaint, but the judge didn't do anything illegal, so we're dismissing the complaint. Uh, Still no opinion from the judge, no ruling on the motion for reconsideration, no transcript of the trial. About a week before two years since the trial, I receive the judge's opinion of what he rules. Um, I lost in every category that we tried to go for, uh, the judge ignored every part of my testimony, the judge ignored every lie that they made or every contradictory statement. And the judge, uh, cherry picked words and restructured what I said. Contrary to what I testified against. Uh, At this point, I simply uh, was bewildered. Um, I couldn't understand what the fuck was happening. And I still can't understand why this judge would have put his legacy on the line for this person. Um, maybe because so many court employees were involved in it and he's just trying to protect the whole plague, uh, sort of like crossing that thin blue line I was talking about earlier, but yeah, uh, not a single thing was ruled in my favor. I lost according to this judge's opinion on all of my complaints, uh, so currently, I have filed an appeal, and I thank God that our justice system does have the court of appeals. I'm very confident that when it is brought to the court of appeals, that uh, that it is reversed, and this guy does have to pay the consequences for his actions Um, this guy and everyone involved in trying to destroy my life. One thing that I read in the opinion was the judge claims that he gave us a motion for reconsideration that he denied that motion. And that that was nearly two years ago that he denied that motion. Now, like I said before, I believe my attorney's a good attorney. Um, until I have proof that he isn't, I'm going to continue believing he is. But now I'm stuck in a sticky situation because my attorney says that he never received anything, but now I have a judge saying that he did uh, give us that document. Honestly, I trust my attorney more than I trust this judge. So, yeah, that is pretty much an up to speed par. Uh, now, in that two years that I waited for this opinion, um, my relationship, needless to say, with my wife at the time uh disintegrated. I was I was flabbergasted that her dad would get up there and throw me under the bus by making up lies and making me look bad. Uh so for roughly a good month, you know, All my wife heard from me is, what the fuck is up with your dad? Um, And she eventually got sick and tired of it. I'd imagine her dad uh, intervened. And, yeah, my wife ended up leaving me. Uh, We were together close to 20 years. And... This one incident tore us apart. Uh, It's something that I had to deal with. It's something that I've gotten over. But in trying to get over that, that is where I became addicted listening to podcasts. Um. I was going through some tough times, and when my wife left me, I felt stranded. I felt like my whole support system was removed from me, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I hit a major point of depression, and what got me through that depression was listening to podcasts. Listen to podcasts I was able to get educated on some things. I started listening to legal podcasts and then I started listening to Joe Rogan which uh, taught me a lot about life and other people's situations. And then you know they also made me laugh with comedians like uh, Bill Burr and others. Uh, And very soon I realized the importance and the impact the podcast had. And I also realized that I wasn't the only one out there that was going through these tough situations. And years ago, I had considered doing a podcast. And it was going to be more tuned to the anti-corruption. More tuned to this court case. More tuned to... How public officials were handling it, how uh, just how we have a blind faith in these people that they're doing their jobs when once you start looking at what their job duties are and what they're actually doing, how very little of their jobs they actually do complete on a day to day basis. But I held off on it. And then, as I was going through uh, everything that I'm going on now, and then Michigan legalized the recreational cannabis, um, I picked it up as a hobby, and that is what ended up leading me into this podcast. So I'm sorry that I've rambled so on, that I've brought you deeper than you probably wanted to come. To me, this is a lot of stuff that I've wanted to talk about, but I haven't had the venue to do it, or the timing hasn't been right. And it's just something that I need to let off my chest, uh, and maybe it will help other people out there. Uh, I'm standing up, and I'm fighting against it. Like I said, if if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And I decided that I'm going to be part of the solution. Um, I'm, I'm only one man. My funds are very limited. Attorneys cost a great deal of money. And I could honestly line up another half dozen lawsuits against public officials, just in my own personal capacity for illegal shit going on towards me. Um, but that is going to complete the who I am. Uh, now you guys know a little bit more about me, uh, a little bit about what has shaped me, what I've been through. I'll fill in a bunch of the blank spaces in upcoming podcasts. Uh, this was sort of random. I didn't really throw it together as clean and as neat as I should have for you guys. But uh, hopefully my methods improve over time. And hopefully you guys keep listening. Because uh, the only reason I'm doing this is because for some odd reason, you guys keep listening. And people keep coming. And you guys keep listening to damn near every fucking episode I put out there. So uh, I'm going to keep putting episodes out and keep sharing my struggles as I go through this life, whether they're hydroponics, whether they're personal, whether they're business-related. Um, not everyone out there is bad, and that's something that i got to work on understanding. It's just I've dealt with my fair share of these bad people. And I need to let anyone else out there who's having to deal with this that you're not alone. Uh, Talk about it. Uh, The more I talk about it, the better I feel about it. And hopefully the more I talk about it, the more likely it is that these people will be held responsible for their actions. Uh, That is what the justice system's for. And I sure hope that that is what it is used for again. uh, Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for my next episode.